Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. I am Talbot Davis, the pastor here, and whether you're live stream or live at our Moss campus, super delighted to be able to connect with you today. I've really enjoyed this series, one of my favorite ones to deliver ever, this series about walking on eggshells. And the reason we did it is because I know from experience and observation, some of you within the sound of my voice, you don't just walk on eggshells, you are like a professional eggshell walker. And so we devoted this time to navigating difficult and touchy relationships. Today's message, the final one in the series, is called Deja Vu. And as all of the messages in this series have come from, this one is it's based on, uh, well, the Bible, for one thing, but it's based on, uh, in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel. And so if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to locate 1 Samuel chapter 24. Just keep your finger there. And uh, if, you're, uh, if your Bible's on your phone, go ahead and scroll to 1 Samuel 24. We're also going to be looking at 1 Samuel 26. And if you're either live stream or live and, and, and you don't have a Bible, you don't have your Bible, you, you're not sure where it all is, it's okay for today because we all the verses will be up on the screen, whether the screen at Moss or your screen at home at just the right time. And we love it when that happens because we don't want you just to trust my word for what the Bible says. We want you to see it for yourself. And that's because we believe that that the biblical library, and this is, it, though it looks like a book, it's really a library. And, and the book of 1 Samuel is in the section of the library devoted to the national history of Israel, events that happened about 3,000 years ago. But we believe that the entire biblical library, and this may be something you're still wrestling with, you hadn't figured out, it's okay. We just want to be upfront and honest. We believe in leadership here that God breathed his life into its words. He put his truth onto its pages. The Bible really is inspired, eternal, and true. Because we believe that as a community, when we talk about the Bible, we do something. Some of you already beat me to the punch. We lift it up. And, and, and if you've never been here before, you never tuned in before, and there's books in the air and phones in the air, and you're like, that's just kind of a little bit strange. <laughs> you know what? We admit it. Yep, this is different. But we have discovered that this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. We are a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be let loose in our lives. Amen? So before I say anything else, let's pray. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired the author of 1 Samuel. And I pray that same spirit would animate me, breathe life and truth into me today and into all who are within the sound of my voice. We pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been coming to Good Shepherd Church for any length of time, you've probably heard this. And if, if you're new, you haven't. But either way, it bears repeating. Here it is. Writing in ancient times, in the days when the books of the Bible were written, writing was both extraordinarily expensive and it was backbreaking labor. So writing cost a lot in a way we can't even conceive because of parchment and, and ink and, and, and the way desks were or were not arranged in those days. Writing cost you a lot of money 
and it was physically laborious. It bent your back and it broke your bank at the same time. Because that was true of writing in ancient times. Anytime one of the authors of the Bible repeats something, you know off the bat, wow, that cost him some serious bank and that made his back ache by the end of writing all. They, 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 in writing in those days, they didn't have all caps. Don't you just love getting emails, all caps? And they, they didn't have all caps. They didn't have bold. They didn't have italics. They didn't have any, any of the, those kind of tools that we have. So absent all that, the only way the, the biblical authors had of, of making you really sit up and pay attention was to repeat something. So repetition was the Bible's version of a neon light. Pay attention to this. This means everything. It bent my back. It broke my bank. You better pay attention. And, and the reason I tell you that is because as we wind up this series, Walking on Eggshells, we're going to look at, at a twice-told tale within the same book, and it is a twice-told tale that I got to confess. Y'all ready for a confession from someone who's been preaching for 30-plus years? I didn't even know this was in the Bible. Nobody brought tomatoes with you or anything. I didn't even know it was there. And then when I learned that it was and I saw the author's incredible skill in putting it together, it was like, ta-da, lights go on everywhere. And, and, and I just have this great confidence that, 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 that as you hang with me for the next few minutes and we see this author's amazing, remarkable skill, his brilliance, and, and what it is that he wants us to say, what, his, what wants us to see, what his neon light is communicating to us, it will give us such a breakthrough. It will give us so much insight into all those difficult people in our lives, the people around whom we walk on eggshells. Because that's what we've been doing for the last three weeks. We've been looking at those relationships in our lives, because y'all have them. People in your life who are, who are volatile. People in your life who are erratic and unpredictable. People who in your life who just by the expression on their face, they can change the atmosphere in the room. They walk in and just by what's on the, what they're saying with their facial expression, all of a sudden, everyone is on edge. What's she so upset about? Who's he mad at? The incredible skill of being able to control a whole environment just by what you do with your face. And in response, when we have these relationships in our lives, we're spending the whole day walking on eggshells because we don't know when they're going to blow and we don't know when they're going to be sweet. And for some of you, what kind of relationship I'm talking about, this is the person you're married to. Or this is the person you're dating and think about getting married to. And for others, this is the person who raised you. And for others, this, this is the person you raised. And for others, maybe it, it's a, a sibling. And then for a whole lot of you, it is a coworker. You have a coworker of whom all these kinds of things are true. And then some of you who are, who are like, I, man, I just don't know. I don't know anybody like that. And the reason you don't is because you're the one. 
You're, you're, you're the parent, you're the child, you're the sibling, you're the coworker around whom everyone in your life walks on eggshells. And, and our guides through this entire series have been two ancient men, two men living about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Jesus came to earth. Saul, who is the king of Israel, the first king of the nation of Israel, and David, who is Saul's unwilling rival, and willing son-in-law. And, and throughout Saul, we, we just know from the very first moments of meeting Saul in, in the Bible, that he's, he's wounded, he's weak, and he projects a lot of his woundedness and he projects a lot of his weakness onto David. And, and throughout this, this marvelous story we've been looking at, he's given David whiplash. Does he love me? Yes. Does he wanna kill me? Yes. And it's so great that we had a heart. Did y'all notice we had a heart playing in church today? Give it up for the harp today. Well, the, the great thing is, is, is that in 1 Samuel, and, and if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you saw this, and if you weren't, that's okay. But, but David plays the harp, and when he plays the harp for, for the bulk of his relationship with Saul, it soothes him. It's like music therapy for Saul. And then he plays the harp one, more one too many times, I guess, and instead of soothing Saul, Saul tries to kill him. Can we agree that that's a pretty big gap? Soothing incitement towards murder. So David, David is, is just walking on eggshells because he never knows how Saul is going to react. And there's one other thing that Saul is, and that is he's relentless because he continually pursues David. Does he, does he love me? Yes. Does he want to kill me? Yeah. So he continually pursues David because the, the word that 1 Samuel always uses in describing David is that he fled or he's in flight. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 24, verses one and two says this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took, verse two, Saul took 3,000, you might want to underline that, 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. That's not a ride at Carowinds, near the crags of the wild goats. Now, now notice, 3,000 men to chase after one guy and his small militia. You're supposed to notice that because guess what? this might pop up again. And you're not supposed to notice the overkill. One guy, let's send 3,000 after him. And, and what happens next is one of those occasions in the Bible where you're just so grateful that the authors, the inspired authors of the Bible, that every so often they wanted to include something in their work that would make a middle school boy perk up. And take note, wow, did this really say this? Take a look, I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Verse three, he came to the sheep pens along the way. That's David, came to the sheep pens. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve him. This is in the Bible. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So I can, I can promise you that went in to relieve himself in the original language, the Hebrew. It's much more graphic than even than what we have in the English, but that's all I'm gonna say about that. And, 
And, and so there's this cave and, 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 and who knows? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe in ancient times they used caves as ancient portageons. I don't know. But there is Saul and unknown to Saul, deeper in the cave, David is hiding with his men. And, and Saul has been chasing David to try to kill him because he loves him and he wants him dead at the same time. And here Saul is incredibly vulnerable. And look at what David's men encouraged David to do in verse four. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. You know, hey, David, go do it. Do it, do it. He's so vulnerable. He's helpless. You can kill him now. Revenge will be so sweet. Think of all that, that this guy's tried to do to you. You can get him now. In God's name, let's go kill him. David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of his robe, which he'd apparently discarded. So David responds to what his guys are telling him by rebuking them. Look at what he says in verses five through seven. Afterwards, David, oh, sorry, verses six and seven. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he's the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul washed his hands for 30 seconds like he had been told, left the cave, left the cave and, and went on his way. So notice this, there's vulnerable Saul, almost dead Saul. There's this, uh, there's this encouragement, do it, do it, do it now in the name of Jesus. You got him vulnerable, take advantage of it. And then there is this speech where, where David says, no, I will not. And he takes a memento, a little piece of the robe of, of, to demonstrate what he could have done, maybe even what he should have done, but what he didn't do. Note all of that, because guess what? <laughs> it might, might make another appearance in a little bit. So then in verse 11, David is talking to Saul and, and he said, see my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. What, he, what he's saying is this memento, memento that, that I took when you were doing your business, I could have killed you, probably should have killed you. I didn't kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. And I'm your son-in-law. You're hunting me down to take my life. And the way that Saul answers him, just classic. Look at verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? Oh my gosh. Head games all over again. If you're with us a couple of weeks ago, this is exactly how, how he, is it, who are you again? It's, it's always this head game that Saul is playing with David. And he wept aloud. I don't know if the crocodile was right next to him, but these are some serious crocodile tears going on. And then, and then he gives a little speech, verses 17 through 21. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you today for the way you treated me today. Verse 20. 
I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So, so here's, so I am so sorry, scouts honor. I promise never to do it again. I'm gonna stop pursuing you. I'm really sorry for how badly I've treated you. And what is so marvelous about this apology, and, and you probably lived through this with people in your life, Saul is not apologizing because he has remorse. He's apologizing because he got caught. And he's making this promise, I'm so sorry, and I'll never, or I'll always, I've learned my lesson. Again, not because there's been any kind of change internally, but because he's embarrassed that he got caught. And I know you have people in your life and some of you may be this person in, in other people's lives and you are great at apologizing when you get caught. But if you were to be asked, well, before you're caught, simply because it's the right thing to do, do you come clean? And you're like, well, why would I want to come clean? I want to get away with my sin. I don't want to get done with it. And one other thing about Saul in his little speech to David in verse 17, you are more righteous than I. Such flattery. And that again, that's a, a tool of, of manipulative people is just kind of overflowing the flattery. And I, I just got to, I am so vulnerable. I mean, you, you tell me how great I am and you can have, have whatever keys to my kingdom that you want. But through the years, and, and it's a hard lesson to learn such a fine line between affirmation, which is awesome, and flattery, which is manipulative. And so let's summarize where we have been. We have pursuing Saul. We have vulnerable Saul. We have almost dead Saul. We have restrained David. We have advice given to David. Do it, do it, do it in the name of Jesus. We have memento collecting David. And then we even have a, a, a promise. I promise I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry for what I've done. Once told tale with all of those elements, which is why what happens in 20, chapter 26 just two chapters over, remembering, remembering Every word this inspired author writes, it bends his back and it breaks his bank. And look how chapter 26 begins in, in verses 1 and 2. The Ziphites, and Ziphites were mercenaries, so hired soldiers. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and they said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with, hello, his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. So instead of, oh, I'll, I promise I'll never do it again. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to chase you. And, and instead of being that, Saul was all Britney Spears, didn't he? Oops, I did it again. We're supposed to notice it. 3,000 soldiers for one measly guy in a small militia. And look what happens in verse 5. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul, he saw where Saul and Abner, the son of Nair, the commander of the army, had lain down. 
Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, because everybody knows who Joab is, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? And it says, I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Oh my gosh, deja vu all over again. He's not quite as vulnerable as he was in the cave, but he's sound asleep. And and if you have an enemy, someone you've been trying to kill, and you're sound asleep, your life is in danger, is it not? And look what happens In verse 8, Abishai, who has accompanied David to the camp, Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice because, hello, I won't need to. One strike of the spear is going to do the job. Do you notice it again? There's David's posse, his entourage, do it, do it in the name of God. God's telling you, God's giving you this guy. Let's off him now while we, while we have the chance, the revenge you will get, David. It'll be so sweet. It'll be delicious. By the way, and this is, this, you, don't have to, you don't have to leave a special offering for this or, or anything, but the word, the, the Lord told me, God, God said to me, such a conversation stopper. And, and I just want you to be very cautious. Unless you're quoting scripture, very cautious when you're trying to persuade somebody of your argument or a position. The Lord told me, God said, has such manipulative power. I, I, I do remember the time when, when I got, uh, uh, the Lord told me, And it turned out what the Lord had told her was a provable lie with legal implications. And I saw it proven a lie in a court of law. So just be very, very cautious, both both in terms of of, of using that, unless it's the Lord told you something he's already done, told all of us in Scripture, both in using it and in giving it a tremendous amount of weight. So let's see what David does next. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Verse nine, who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless as surely as the Lord lives? He said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So there, whoa, deja vu again. Kill him, kill him, kill him now. A speech? No, don't you dare tell me to, to kill this man who is the Lord's anointed. I'm, I'm, I'm not taking into my own hands what I ought to leave in God's. And then verse 12, look what he does. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew anything about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So there's a memento again. I, I got a spear. I got a water jug. I had, I had a piece of your robe before. Now I'm taking your spear. Now I'm taking the water jug as an example of what I could have done, maybe what I should have done. Because in verse 16, same chapter, D- David's talking to one of Saul's men, one of those men who were literally asleep on the job and he could have killed Saul like that. 
And look at what he says in verse 16. What you've done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you didn't guard your master. The Lord's anointed, meaning you didn't guard Saul. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near your head? And you know David is there. Hey, buddy, where's that spear? And where's that water jug? Here's my memento, my collectible. I'm, put, I'm putting it with the, the piece of cloth from his robe. What I could have done, what I should have done. And then verse 17, my gosh, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? Every single thing, if you didn't get it the first time, this inspired author wants to make sure that you get it this time, including, including Saul's fake apology and phony promises. Look, then verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned, come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. What's that fool me once? Shame on me. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Oh my gosh. That's a virtuoso performance by our inspired author because you, you got vulnerable Saul, you got almost dead Saul, you got memento taking David, you got speech giving David, you, you got David restraining what you know his impulses wanted to do, you, you got David not taking the, the sweet revenge that he could, you, you have his the faulty advice, do it, do it, do it now in the name of Jesus. And in case you didn't get it the first time, the author says, I'm going to tell it to you again. Just brilliant. So what do we make of it? What do we make of the fake promises? What do we make of the bad advice? What do we make of David's restraining his own impulses towards that sweetness of revenge? What do we do with especially those of us and you got people in your life and maybe they're vulnerable and maybe they love you sometimes, they want to kill you other times and, and you want to know, well, what do I do when I could get even? What, what, what do I do when I could have this sweetness of revenge in my own life? And, and the answer, what the, what the author has really gone to all this trouble of telling us this twice told tale is in David's final speech that he gives in Saul's presence. These are the last words that David will ever speak out loud, that Saul will hear. And it is a speech that ends up being more about God than it is about Saul. And it is as if throughout this whole process that David has learned something larger and greater about life and larger and greater about God. And there will come a time very, very soon where Saul will be in his rear view mirror and David will have taken something of eternal important significance from this whole encounter. Look at what he says in verses 22 through 24. Here's the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Here it is. Here's, here's the punchline from this 
incredible scenario of revenge and restraint and advice and vulnerability. And here's what I want you to know. The favor of restraint is greater than the sweetness of revenge. That the favor you get from restraint is so much greater than the sweetness that you would get from revenge. Because the thing is, when you leave in God's hands, what you're tempted to take into your own, I have to believe, and David's story has to tell us that God will end up pouring more stuff into those same hands than you could ever hold on your own. That's the favor that comes from your restraint. When when you don't give your nemesis what they do deserve, God's going to circle back around and he's going to give you all kinds of stuff that you don't deserve. Better than you deserve. In, In David's case, he got the kingdom Saul does die towards the, towards the end of the book and, and David becomes the rightful and, and righteous king of Israel. And, and his, his uh, reign was by no means perfect, but it had a perfect ending because David is in the bloodline of the Messiah and he is the perfect one. David gets to be a player in eternity. The favor that comes from restraint is greater than the sweetness of revenge. Those of you who think revenge is sweet, you have been sold a, sold a bill of goods. What feels sweet in the moment turns bitter in a couple of weeks. Because some of you have nemeses now. It could be a mate. It could be an ex-mate. It could be a boss. It could be a sibling, parent, child and they're vulnerable and you may even have voices around you or voices inside you do it do it do it do it get even it's going to feel so so good in the moment man i had a friend a number of years ago and he had kind of a issue with someone in his, in his extended family he lives far away this is several years ago and it, issue with someone in the extended family and he got in his car and to, to make that situation right, to protect who needed to be protected and to punish who needed to be punished. And he had a gun in his car. And all of a sudden he was tempted to take into his own hands with some consequences that would have been unbelievably serious for anyone on the receiving end and for him, for what he had done with the gun. And so all of a sudden it it had gone from this to this. And it was the kind of thing that only happens to other people. And now it was happening to him. And by extension to me, because he was calling me on his way. And he had a but God moment. By God's goodness and God's grace, he turned the car around and never decided to settle any kind of score with that extended family member. And restraint won the day. And I'm looking forward to how the blessings are going to flow in his life. The, the favor of restraint is greater than the sweetness of revenge. Again, you, you may have one of these people in your life. 
And maybe it's an ex in the aftermath of a divorce, or maybe it's someone at work who arranged everybody to line up against you and you suffered the consequences, and you have that opportunity, and you could get even, you could enact some kind of revenge, and it would feel so delicious. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to tune in to the power that is at the center of the universe, the power that hums at the center of everything in the universe, and that is the power of the Messiah on the cross, who given what he could have done and what he should have done to his creatures who were killing their creator, but what he didn't do, that is the power that hums at the very center of the universe. Maybe for you, maybe your situation, it, it has, you're, you're in the, uh, the aftermath of a, of a thoroughly modern romance and you have some images on your cell phone that could be quite compromising to your ex and you're tempted to go public with them. And if that's you, and you're in that kind of situation, I just want you to know, I have had a front row seat where that has happened. And I've seen the homes broken, and I've seen the jobs lost, and I have seen the attorney fees pile up. And that revenge and that humiliation, which would feel sweet, taste sweet in the moment, it goes down so, so bitter. Which is why I invite you to remember and to acknowledge the power that literally hums at the center of everyone and everything. The power at the heart of the universe is that power of restraint. You don't have the ability, you don't have the strength on your own to become a person of, your, uh, of restraint. Because in our natural selves, we're all people of revenge. But you tap into that power, that glorious, wonder-working, miracle-performing power at the center of the universe, and you will be able to, to leave in God's hands what you are tempted to take into your own. Because when we think that revenge is ours, we forget that vengeance is His. You got some folks in your life, it could be a parent, it could be an ex, it could be a sibling. They deserve it. They need some karma. Isn't it interesting? We, we only want other people to get their karma. Nobody wants your own. Hey, karma is not a Christian concept. Grace is. Grace is so much greater, more, more vast, more at the center of the universe than karma ever could be. And you live into that kind of grace and you will have that kind of understanding that in your life and in the lives of those around you, ah, the favor that comes with restraint is greater than the temporary phony sweetness of revenge. Because David, David could have killed Saul in the port of John in the cave. And he could have killed him in the sleep in the middle of the camp. But if he'd done either of those things, he would have seized the kingdom, the kingdom that was not yet his. But by restraining those impulses, he didn't seize the kingdom, he received it. And believe me, 
receiving is better than seizing any day of the week. And if I have to tell you that twice to get you to get it, <laughs> I will. The favor of strength is greater than the sweetness of revenge. Let's pray. So God, we, we are so grateful that while Saul might have pursued David with malicious intent, you pursue us surrounded by love with a graceful intent. And I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice, live stream and live, would tap into that grace-filled, restraint-filled power today. In your name we pray. Amen.